Hello and welcome to Main Mother Matriarch with me, Louise Perry. My guest today is Alex Byrne, Professor of Philosophy at MIT and the author of a new book, Trouble with Gender. We spoke about uh, the difficulty that Alex had in getting his book published, the efforts by activists to get it shut down, and how publishing has been thoroughly captured by the progressive left, and indeed how philosophy has been thoroughly captured by the progressive left. In the extended version of the episode, we also spoke about uh, the feminization of academia and of public life, and about why no one in transactivist circles wants to talk about autobanophilia. That extended version of the episode can be found at my substack, louiseperry.substack.com, where you can also find bonus episodes, uh, all the other extended episodes, and the MMM chat community. Enjoy. So Alex, could you start by telling us a bit about your own background in philosophy and how it is you came to be interested in this most uh, controversial of areas? Sure. So I, I grew up in, in Britain, in um, the wonderful town of, of Hemel Hempstead. And I came to philosophy actually quite late after first doing uh, an undergraduate degree in in maths. And I was working in in London uh, for an advertising agency after that, of all things. And I started going to uh, Birkbeck College, at the University of London in the evenings. I discovered that you could um, do a, a second undergraduate degree there, at least at the time, it wasn't very expensive at all. And the, and the department was, was really terrific. Roger Scruton was there, for example. I suddenly discovered that, yeah, yeah uh, philosophy is my my thing. So I, I did a, a, a second undergraduate degree in philosophy at, um, at Birkbeck. Um, and then I found my way to the States to do a, a PhD at, at Princeton. And then I ended up at, at MIT, where I've been for many years, teaching philosophy as a, as a philosophy professor. We have a department of linguistics and philosophy at, at MIT. And Chomsky uh, used to be a very prominent member of that department. And for many years, I didn't work on on sex or gender, which is, in philosophy, the, the province of uh, this relatively small but growing subfield of philosophy called feminist philosophy. And I, I had always been interested in sex differences and biology. Um, and then, although I certainly haven't uh, written uh, anything about it. And around 2017, it became apparent that philosophy, or at least feminist philosophy, had uh, um, an intolerant side, which I was somewhat horrified at. So there was the very public cancellation of the junior philosopher Rebecca Toole in, in 2017 when she wrote this article for Hypatia called In Defense of, of Transracialism. And, you know, na naively you would have thought, gosh, this is all like, this is all super progressive. So this was a couple of years after Caitlyn Jenner had come out on the cover of Vanity Fair. Um, and uh, Rebecca was certainly not saying that there was anything wrong with that at all. 
the the whole argument was well, you should extend the very same courtesies to transracial people, and you'll remember Rachel Dolezal, this um, this well white woman who was basically larping as a as a black woman, but um, she was the the head of the NAACP in Spokane, Washington. But she had a lot of um, African American credentials. Um, mm. She grew up in this, at least partly African American family. I think she had adopted black siblings. She went to a um, historically black university, and so on. You would have expected that, you know. At the very least, this article wouldn't wouldn't have caused some huge explosion from the progressive side, but indeed it did. Um, and lots of philosophers, I have to say, in in, in the profession were quite horrified at the treatment of uh, of Rebecca. Uh, anyway, um, fast forward, uh, I guess, a year, and we have Kathleen Stock in 2018 writing about. The reforms to the 2004 Gender Recognition Act, and saying some extremely mild things. I mean, by by any standards. Um, and at the time, as I remember, Kathleen just bent over backwards to be entirely neutral on the the question of whether trans women are women, and um, wrote in this, or, or I think in retrospect, she would regard as this very convoluted style to avoid sort of committing herself one way one way or the, or the other anyway so her her activities produced another backlash from the from the philosophy profession coming mostly from feminist uh, feminist philosophers and I think it was around then that I, I started to just get more interested in the topic because I started reading about Kathleen and so I that just naturally led to the literature, the philosophical literature on 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 sex and gender, and and I thought the more I read, the more I thought, gosh, I I, I really disagree with uh, with with most of this. <laughs> I think I can make some contribution. So I ended up writing. Well, I wrote a number of like, popular things about whether sex is binary and whether sex is socially constructed. But then I wrote a a philosophy paper. Uh, called Are uh, Women Adult Human Females in um, in 2020. And that caused some, I mean, it was eventually published, but it took me a long time to get it published. And of course, your, your audience is probably like slapping its collective forehead, wondering why anyone would write that article. I mean, isn't it like obvious or something or what? Um, not for philosophers. No, 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 that's right, not for philosophers. But the, the, I mean, the really fascinating thing, which I absolutely cannot, cannot get over, I keep sort of returning to it, is that the received view among experts in philosophy who study sex and gender is that women are not adult human females. And in fact, that view that women are simply the mature females of our species um, hardly gets any airtime whatsoever. Mm. Um, it's not even considered as a, uh, as a serious view. And that's just from a sort of sociological history of ideas perspective, that's, 
that's quite fascinating, I think. Um, anyway, so I wrote that paper um, that ultimately led to the resignation of the editor-in-chief of the journal in question. And it, um, it also um, ultimately, ultimately meant that I, as far as I know, am the, the most published author in Peter Singer's journal, um, the Journal of Controversial Ideas. So as a result of all the fallout, I, I ended up writing some more things. Uh, and they were all uh, they were all published in Singer's the Journal of Controversial Ideas, I and mean, it's completely insane. So Singer, Singer, along with a couple of others, started this journal in I, I think it's I think it's twenty twenty or it might have been twenty twenty one. And without that journal, um, my um, my career in sex gender publishing would have been pretty much over as soon as it started. Uh, uh, yeah. Anyway, so sorry. I uh, to to cut a long um, to cut a long story short. Um, by that time, I I um, I'd read so much and uh, written a fair bit. But I thought, okay, uh, um, a book would be a good idea. And then the book was cancelled by Oxford University Press. But that's another story. Well, let's tell that story. Because okay, so the, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, not so the only then, book to get that I mean, treatment. No, that's either. right. But no, but yeah. this was this was just completely, completely bizarre. Because okay, so here, so uh, so the story is in. Um, yeah, I think this was probably around around twenty twenty. I formulated the idea for a book. So this would not be an academic book. This would be a, a trade book, um, just uh, discussing questions like what is a woman? What is gender identity? Do we all have one? Um, what's the difference between sex and gender? This kind of thing. And um, along the way, correcting, as I saw it, the, the many mistakes made by my colleagues. And I... Um, Approached a number of publishers, and eventually Oxford University Press offered me a contract. And um, with with great enthusiasm, they said they would promote it as a trade book, and that it would be an important one, and so on. And so I started writing it. And simultaneously, there was a um, a big fuss over um, Holly Lawford Smith's first book, Gender Critical. Feminism. I think you, you you've had Holly on the pod. She was on recently, yes. Yeah, no. So Holly is is great and is by now um, really the only prominent gender critical feminist um, working in working in in philosophy. The only one who's out anyway. Mm. Now that now that Kathleen has been um, uh, exiled. Um, anyway, so Holly had uh, this book, Gender Critical Feminism, coming out with Oxford. As soon as um, this was announced, a bunch of open letters, two open letters appeared, basically telling Oxford University Press that this was a, an awful idea and the press should uh, take steps. By then it was too late to do anything about the actual publication of the book other than pulpit. Um, they told uh, OUP, in effect, um, put some steps in place to make sure that this 
never happen, this sort of thing never happens again. And OUP, uh, to its credit, faced down the protesters. I was a little worried at the time, but I was reassured when OUP said, oh, um, we're just going to publish the book. It went through peer review in the normal, in the normal fashion. Um, but then uh, Holly had a second book with OUP called Sex Matters. And then there was my book, Trouble with Gender, and they were proceeding more or less along, along parallel tracks. I submitted uh, a first draft of the manuscript, expecting to get back, as you normally do, uh, readers' reports, suggestions for revision. I would then revise the manuscript, and maybe there would be further haggling over, um, over various changes. It never crossed my mind for a minute that OUP would just reject it. After all, it was under contract, and I, I published a book an academic book this time with, with OUP before. Anyway, so they did indeed reject it. They rejected it just out of hand on the grounds that it didn't treat the subject in a sufficiently serious and respectful way. That, that was it. There was just like one sentence of, of explanation. And then after my book uh, was cancelled, literally just a couple of weeks uh, after mine was cancelled, Holly's new book, Sex Matters, was also cancelled by OUP, this time on, uh, on separate but equally spurious grounds. And I, I'd already had some other stuff, a, a, another thing cancelled by Oxford University Press um, a few weeks prior, some invited chapter on pronouns that I was asked to write for an Oxford University Press handbook. Um, that ended up in the Journal of Controversial Ideas. So I was um, thoroughly beaten down at that point and offered no resistance because I knew it would be absolutely pointless. So then I hunted for another pub publisher and found your own publisher policy. Um, but Holly uh, fought back and... Um, she had the help of the UK's free speech union, Toby Young's outfit. And, a result, and as a result of the free speech union basically threatening Oxford University Press, they published Holly's second book, Sex Matters, which is now out, um, although unfortunately it's priced at a, um, an absurdly high level. It's like £70 or something like that. Do you think, that, um, do you think and, that's deliberate? Um, it might not be. I mean, some OUP books do, I mean, the, on the more um, academic side, do sell for for ridiculously high prices, at least in hardback. Yeah, well, isn't the standard thing, at least what they do at Polity, as you'll know, is to release it in an academic hardback, which is super expensive and in an affordable paperback simultaneously. So they do yeah, although mine has just been released... Um, so mine, mine, mine is not an academic book. So it's just been released in 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 hardback. It just came out in the UK, being released in hardback. I don't know what the plans for the for the paperback are. But I but I think OUP normally um, issues a hardback, which is bought by libraries, and then and then it, it's only later that it comes out that it comes out in in paperback. But certainly OUP could have priced it lower and um made much more money from it than they're than they're mm. than they're going to i mean holly goes on all these podcasts and her book is mentioned 
many times it's uh it's clear public interest for, yeah for, yeah right a, and her book even though it's like officially an academic one is very accessible i think and um but it, anyway you know oxford university press is the i think the second oldest academic press in the world after cambridge and this has got to be the first time that they were essentially forced to publish a book under threat of legal action. I mean, I'm pretty sure that that's what the Free Speech Union did. I mean, otherwise OUP just wouldn't have wouldn't have published it. So um, the situation in in philosophy is not very um, encouraging for the gender critical side, broadly speaking. Um, but neither is the situation in in, uh, in publishing and in particular academic publishing. I mean, you would have thought academic publishing houses um, out of all publishing houses would have been the ones to um, publish potentially controversial books. I mean, they're not for-profit enterprises. You could understand commercial publishers like the the publisher of the original publisher of Nigel Bigar's colonialism book from, for getting cold feet. That could have just been a plain old commercial decision. But with academic presses, it, it's totally different, or it should be. Except that controversial books sell so many more copies, actually. Well, <laughs> if they yeah, were just no, that, motivated right. by commercial motivations, I'd imagine actually they'd yeah. love to be publishing all yeah. of these. Uh, yeah, no, that's right. That's right. The more, the more, the more controversial, the polemic, the better. If they were only interested in selling copies, so that that is actually very puzzling. That um, people are prepared to sacrifice long term profit for short term harmony in the office or something like that. But um, I, I mean, I it is yeah, a, I, it is a very interesting facet of publishing in general, which obviously I've only seen from the author side. I've never worked in the publishing industry, yeah. but from speaking to people who work in publishing, no one seems to care about making profit except maybe, except maybe some of the bosses, but, but all the people working kind of, I mean, most books don't make any money. So there is always the expectation in publishing that most most books you publish are not going to, like the Pareto distribution within publishing is insane. So you're going to have a handful of books which make loads and loads of money and basically finance everything else. But, you know, what they did, for instance, in, um, oh, I forget which imprint it was now, um, the imprint that was publishing J.K. Rowling's crime thrillers under the Robert Galbraith title, they had very, very, fairly junior people within the publishing house who said that they would refuse to work on them because they objected so strongly to J.K. Rowling's gender critical views. And like those titles bankroll the entire imprint. Yeah. Like it's just yeah, crazy. crazy. I mean, I, and I, yeah. so, so they were eventually, I think I, they weren't like fired, but all these junior people were basically told to um, put up and shut up by their bosses. I have an anecdote on, on, on exactly that point, um, this is on on Twitter or or X, as I was supposed to call it these I'm days. I'm still calling it Twitter. I, well, <laughs> I won't back yeah, down. Well, of all the decisions that Elon Musk has, has made, this has got to be the worst. <laughs> the email signature of an editorial assistant in uh, OUP, Oxford University Press's New York office, uh, recently came to light. And... Uh, 
it, I mean, it's almost certainly a woman, right? I have to say. Um, uh, at the, at the end of her email signature, you know, it's Oxford University Press, New York, Madison Avenue, or wherever it is there located, it says, I do not support the publication of Sex Matters by Holly Lord Smith. And this is tolerated by OUP's um, New York office. This is like perfectly acceptable. It's perfectly acceptable for one of their employees to, to say publicly, well, I... I simply don't agree that we should be publishing this book. So yeah, it's exactly like J.K. Rowling. Crazy, crazy, and yeah. and the fact, yeah, I, I mean, there's there's a book to be written, and I hope someone does one day, just about the sort of internal politics of publishing. And the, I mean, I'm guessing that part of what happens is many people you don't you don't go to work in publishing if you're interested in making money. So I think it is one of those industries that tends to attract people who are very ideological and are and it's also a very prestigious job right this is a point that's it's it's a very interesting question as to why institutions like academia publishing charities a few others have become so dominated by people on the left in recent decades and one theory about it which i think is quite convincing is it's because people on the right tend to want to make money (laughs) And those, none of those industries offer the opportunities to make money. So they end up, so people, so those people go into law, finance, whatever, all of these intellectually stimulating and much more, much better paid industries. And maybe that's why publishing just, it just becomes all about ideology. Right. I mean, there is, there is this slight market correction with publishing houses like, is it Swift? Who Mm. come in to, to scoop up these, these controversial books. Yeah, and indeed, Polity have has has have taken on um, dangerous titles like yours and mine. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think yours is more yours is more dangerous than mine. I mean, the 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 thing about mine is, I mean, I deliberately set out not to write a book which is about about these um, hot button social political policy issues. So the book itself doesn't take any official stand on. I don't know, the treatment of gender dysphoric youth or um, trans women in sports or self-ID or anything like, anything like that. And I, I thought, you know, de- decoupling those issues um, from um, the more sort of philosophical ones, um, for a start, would just give me so much more space to, to deal with, with the, the more more descriptive questions um and anyway it's you know people obviously get distracted if policy recommendations are kind of mixed in with with the more the more neutral stuff um but of course that didn't really do me any good um, <laughs> we're trying trying to stay trying to stay above the fray and you know <laughs> I often think that it's the people who are situated somewhere in the middle and who are trying to be extremely neutral and reasonable who actually get the most vociferous cancellation attempts. I think that when you are so clearly sort of marked as an enemy, they sometimes just don't bother. It's the people who they see as being in the kind of vulnerable middle ground 
very strange times. I mean, of course, I, I, they should say, in a way, it's like the best thing that uh, that could have happened from my own selfish point of view. I mean, there's nothing like a bit of light cancellation uh, <laughs> to to drum up to drum up publicity. I think there's definitely been more more interest in the book than there otherwise would have been. I mean, you know, I ended up writing a rather um, uh, having a, a ghost written essay in the in the Daily Mail. <laughs> As a result of all this, I never thought I would appear in the Daily Mail, uh, <laughs> railing against my critics and so on. On the one hand, it's often that the um, the cancelled people are not the ones who, who really suffer, although sometimes they, they genuinely do. I mean, Rebecca Tubal and, and, and Kathleen, even though Kathleen's career has kind of taken off um, in a quite, quite spectacular way, nonetheless, she really suffered... Um, uh, early in the, the whole the whole process, but the main damage is done by dissuading um, other people from getting into this subject in, mm. in the first place. So, in the in the case of philosophy, it would just be like career suicide to start working on this topic if uh, you had the sneaking suspicion that you might come to some uh, unapproved conclusions. So there just isn't this, that's why I think the the discipline of philosophy is not going to change anytime soon for the better as far as sex and gender goes, uh, because there isn't this bunch of more open-minded philosophers in the, in the pipeline, or, you know, itching to work on, on, on sex and gender. Mm. There isn't a new generation coming up. No, there isn't a new generation simply, simply because, you know, it's hard enough to get it to get a job in academia in the first place. What do you think it is about philosophy? Because as someone outside the discipline, but the impression that I get is that the most um, the, the most vociferous criticism of gender critical positions has come from philosophy overwhelmingly. Uh, yeah, I think that's um, I think that's right. I mean, I think. Um, I mean, on the one hand. You, you, this is very, this is very, very surprising because the whole ethos of the discipline is to leave no stone unturned, no orthodox assumption uh, examined, and I mean the philosopher Peter Singer is a uh, is a good example. So Singer has argued, uh, for instance, that it would be fine to euthanize severely disabled infants. Um, now, if you go around saying that, then non-philosophers, let's call them ordinary people, t- tend as especially disability rights activists, get extremely uh, annoyed and will protest your talks and so on. But um, philosophers themselves are perfectly happy with they're, they're, they're not at all phased by Singer's arguments on the uh, on this score. They'll, they'll just meet if, if they disagree. Then they will then they will argue against Peter. He's not getting protested by uh, by his 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 fellow philosophers. His fellow philosophers aren't trying to get him fired. Um, so there's that ethos in philosophy where you know anything goes, provided you can argue for it in 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 good faith and. Of course, sometimes our most deeply held assumptions 
uh, actually do turn out to be wrong. So why is it that uh, people like Kathleen Stock and Holly Lawford Smith get so much, so much friendly fire? Um, and you know, when, when, when Kathleen got the OBE uh, in the 2021 New Year's Honours List, um, philosophers, including many prominent people in the profession, many feminist philosophers, wrote this open letter, uh, basically to the Queen, saying, I'm not addressed to the Queen, but basically they were saying, look, <laughs> Your Majesty, you've made a terrible mistake <laughs> awarding this bigot some, some gong. This is crazy. It's done like a huge amount of damage. Um, so why, 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 why did they do that? I mean, I think that um, the, I mean, this in a way brings us back to, to sex differences. Luckily, none of my colleagues are going to listen to this podcast. Let's, let's, let's hope so. <laughs> so I, I, I do think that the, um, the social dynamics um, between um, women um, have something to, to do with it. So feminist philosophy, well, on the one hand, feminist philosophy is really unique among sub-branches of philosophy in that you're kind of tacitly supposed to sign up to a kind of worldview in order to join in the fun. Mm -hmm. So here's a contrast with, say, the philosophy of uh, religion, which is another small sub sub branch of, of philosophy you don't have to be a christian to even though many christians are interested in the philosophy of religion you don't have to be a christian to be a philosopher of religion um, uh, you don't even have to be religious some of the most famous philosophers of, of of religion are hardcore atheists so you can think that um uh Christ is the only way to salvation, or you can think religion is a load of old bollocks. Um, either way, you'll be welcomed into, uh, into the philosophy of religion, and you can have your stuff published in the journals. But with feminist philosophy, it's very different. So if you're, let's say, very sympathetic to David Benatar's line in the, the second sexism, that, you know, sexism goes both ways, and that men in many respects have the, the short end of the stick, then you, you won't be welcome in, in, in feminist philosophy. Uh, or, or, or if you think there's no interesting sense in which women these days are oppressed, again, this is not um, something that's going to um, uh, endear you to the, uh, to the leading people in in feminist philosophy. Okay, so there's, the, there's that aspect of, of feminist philosophy, which, which really makes it uh, unique. And then there's the fact that uh, almost uh, everyone in feminist philosophy is, is, is a woman. And so you do have these social dynamics, uh, which are uh, more, more distinctive of groups of women than, than groups of men. It's a lot of kind of covert aggression and social shaming is used as a sort of weapon to um, get rid of your uh, your enemies it's very um, it's very egalitarian in a way that the male dominated 
areas of philosophy aren't. So I think that um, that at least that at least partly explains why um, people like Kathleen received so much abuse. So it's all very ironic. I, um, it's I mean there's actually a, um, an epigraph at the the start of the book. I don't know if you noticed it's um, it's from the British sci-fi writer uh, John Wyndham's Trouble with Lycan. So trouble with gender is not it's not just a play on Judith Butler's gender trouble, but also on on trouble with lichen. And um, I can't remember the quote exactly, but the, in the some character in in, in the novel is is explaining that um, um, one of the main enemies of of women is uh, are really women themselves. Yeah, I mean, I've always uh, I've always said that the reason that Twitter feels so much like being at a girls' school, not that you'll have been to a girls' yeah. school, Alex, but I'm sure you can imagine, yeah. is because it necessarily forecloses male modes of aggression because right. male modes right. of aggression are physical, um, whereas obviously on Twitter you can't use physical force against one another. So the only forms of aggression you have available to you are the feminine ones. So reputation, damage, gossip, back channels ganging up or you know all of this kind of thing that teenage girls do to one another and indeed adult human female philosophers do to one another yeah. <laughs> particularly yeah. I think no, I mean I'm sure that the part of that I mean I would say Kathleen is a friend so I would say this but I'm sure that a big part of the motivation to take her down was a feeling of envy because she was getting so much positive as well as negative oh, no, in that's the right. media right. yeah yeah that's right that's right and an OBE was just just intolerable <laughs> on that basis and i think that also um at least partly explains why why women like kathleen and and holly um uh are the subject of more vicious attacks than than, than men like me i was going to ask do you think how is your what has your experience of this been compared with Say oh, I don't think there's any. I mean, I don't think there's any com comparison at all. I mean, I've certainly had people say nasty things about me on 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 Twitter, and there have been some like, uh, professional issues, which I really shouldn't go into. But um, but it, but it's absolutely nothing in in, in comparison to uh, to Kathleen. There have occasionally been men in academia who have spoken up about this issue but I think in general it seems to me to be one that's mostly it's it it's mostly women who are on the gender critical side of things and it's also actually mostly women who are on the transactivist side of things as well yeah that's right yeah I mean yeah that's another interesting fact what do you think might explain the the the, the attraction of feminist philosophers in particular to trans activism? That is such a great question and I wish I I had a I, I had a good answer. I mean my my best guess is that um, there's so much emphasis on so-called marginalized groups in um, of course in, in the more progressive areas of um, philosophy and, and in society in 
in general that um, feminist philosophers in, in, in particular, or just philosophers in particular, who, 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 are, um, who think that the greatest task these days is lifting up um, marginalized groups and trying to ameliorate the huge amount of oppression uh, they have been um, subject to are kind of naturally on the lookout for the latest, the latest marginalized groups. I mean, as it were, the more marginalized groups, the better. Transgender people are the um, are the very latest candidate for um, for being super super marginalized. Maybe people were just getting bored with with race and um, race and race and gender and. Um, the transgender thing came came along at more or less the right more or less the right moment when you know of course gay gay rights was basically done and dusted at least in the UK and to a large extent in in the US and of course you had all these this um, surplus um, staff who before were um, very keen on you know their their entire uh, job was uh, promoting promoting gay rights, focusing on gays as 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 the marginalised group, and now that problem had been solved. Um, uh, naturally, you don't want to be unemployed, so the hunt for the latest marginalised group um, was was very uh, was very motivating, and that perhaps something similar um, happened in happened in in philosophy i don't know whether that's particularly convincing but that's my something like that is my my best guess no it sounds very plausible to me i mean it's funny isn't it, it, it in a sense it's question begging in that why would philosophers decide that writing papers for philosophy journals that only other philosophers are likely to read is some sort of important activism that seems to be a, a baked in yeah. as an assumption but it doesn't seem obvious to me at all but, yeah but no no you, you well yeah that 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 is an excellent question so um that's another puzzling thing about this area of, of philosophy so so many feminist philosophers are um if you like want to be activists i mean they want to they want to make a difference i mean mo most philosophers are not under any illusion that uh, that what they say will have any uh, impact on society at large um you know they just do their thing about logic or some arcane question in, in metaphysics or epistemology um uh not really th thinking that um, there's going to be broader uptake by society at large, or they're going to change the world, or anything. But um, many people in feminist philosophy um, are there because they want to make a difference. Because I mean, in a way, it's all it's all extremely extremely laudable. They they um, they see many injustices in the world, and they want to do something about it. Okay, so what do you do? If, on the one hand, you think that a life well lived is a life um, that uh, actually makes a difference to social justice issues, that helps make the world better, 
But on the other hand, you're an academic in 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 philosophy. What do you what do you do? Well, one thing you could do is either just realize, okay, well, what you're going to do, what your professional life is actually not going to make very much difference. Um, that's just something you have to live with. Or you could give up philosophy and go and join some activist organization, go and join Stonewall or the Human Rights Campaign or something like that. Um, but of course, the easiest way out is um, it like involves a bit of cognitive dissonance. And that is to kind of convince yourself that, yeah, philosophy really can make a difference. Um, and so one way this comes out is in this cottage industry in feminist philosophy of trying to define the word woman in a way that's appropriately inclusive. So many, even though no feminist philosopher worth her salt would agree that women are, uh, are adult human females, nonetheless, many feel that um, the current concept of woman, whatever it is, is somehow defective and that it doesn't include trans women or it doesn't include all trans women. So just like speaking with the vulgar, um, it's true that uh, not all trans women are women. Okay, the, this is held to be um, a defect of sort of ordinary English. So uh, this cottage industry, um, it sometimes goes under the title of conceptual engineering, involves refiguring our concept of or redrawing the boundaries of the concept of a woman so that it's appropriate, appropriately, uh, appropriately inclusive. And now, and now using the new concept, you can truly say that, uh, that trans women are women. Um, and the, the philosophers who, 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 who work in this little uh, area, I don't think they think very hard about um, whether their proposals could actually gain traction in, in, the, in the wider world. But that really does seem to be the idea, that somehow people will read these extremely obscure papers in extremely obscure journals, and um, you know, like some sometimes neologisms totally catch on, and ordinary people just sorry. Sometimes neologisms can uh, can uh, can catch on, and a single person can can in effect introduce a new word into the language. I mean, like mansplaining, for example. I can't remember who mm. first came up with that, but. Um, just some, I don't know, some feminist writer came up with mansplaining and suddenly everyone knows this word. It's been introduced mm. in, in, into the lexicon. And I think the, the, the hope somehow is, it's never really spelt out, that one of these newfangled um, definitions of, of woman would somehow catch on in a, in a similar manner and before you know where we are, English has been completely transformed and we're all using the word woman with its spanking new meaning and saying truly trans women are, are, are women. So um, th that sort of seems to be the way that they're, that, that, they're, that they're thinking. And that's a way of, on the one hand, um, just being this ivory tower academic, but on the other hand, thinking, gosh, I really could have... Um, uh, an effect on, um, on on broader society, and I really could help bring about using the the tools of philosophy, 
the tools of conceptual analysis and um, defining words in this way or, or, the, or the other, I really could have a, um, a positive effect on these social justice issues. So I think that's the way they, um, uh, they try and reconcile the demands of social justice on the one hand with like being this academic and this obscure discipline that the wider public has very little knowledge of on, on the other. To me, that seems so silly, but then I am, I am, I guess, a, a fairly sort of vehement historical materialist in that I am generally sceptical about the whole idea of ideology and abstract nouns being sort of key drivers of history. And of course, the philosophers we're talking about here are not materialist because if they were <laughs> they would believe in biological sex it sort of reminds me of um uh Stephen Pinker who obviously is a million miles away from this and I really like Stephen Pinker in general even though I disagree with him on some points but you know in his book the better angels of our nature um which is about this thick and is is trying to explain um the decline in violence across the last kind of 500 years in Europe in particular and one of the explanations he comes up with for why um, people would become less tolerant of things like public executions during the Enlightenment period um, was because people started reading more novels and that novels sort of inspired empathy in people. And I've always thought that was complete bollocks. That many of the other explanations in the book are convincing, but that I, 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 it's something about me. I just don't, I just don't really buy the idea that most people are really motivated by that kind of abstract stuff. But clearly that's not the line of thinking from someone who's an acolyte of Judith Butler, because then it's all about, you know, we are basically, we're, we're, we're not only are we blank slates, but we're sort of biologically amorphous goo. I'm being, I'm being, I'm, I'm, I'm straw manning, but they, they do place enormous amount of emphasis on, I guess, the power of abstract thinking to alter reality that's right but i i think that's maybe that's just a special case of people's tendency to think that the work that they do is much more important than than it actually is i mean you know if you're a plumber well plumbers are extremely important of course but if you're a plumber you're you're likely to have a much higher opinion of plumbing in the general grand scheme of things than than the rest of us um, and then similarly, if you're a, a philosopher who's working with words, words and concepts, it's, it's only natural to think that, well, I'm working, I'm devoting my life to this. So this must be extremely important. Um, but I think, I think you're right in the, I mean, plumbing is much more important than, than philosophy. Podcasting. <laughs> and uh, podcasting, that's true. Uh, podcasting first, then plumbing, and then, and then philosophy, the, the three Ps. You know, you have, I mean, there's a whole genre of books which try try to explain the current woke moment in, in terms of the acceptance of various ideas from Judith Butler or postmodernism. And... I, I'm actually very skeptical that uh, that these explanations are right. I mean, they're not the the evidence given is is um, is is never very convincing because it's all it's always very hard to 
um, to trace the effect of, I don't know, various works by Michel Foucault or, or Gender Trouble into um, the current zeitgeist or specific policy recommendations or the reform of the Gender Recognition Act or the enthusiasm for self-ID or um, the, the current kind of biology denial that you find actually in many, in many um, scientific public publications, let alone, let alone popular, popular culture. So it's, I mean, there's clearly some kind of association there, but just what explains what is, is just not, not obvious to me. I mean, one theory which won't be popular with your colleagues, which, which I think is quite convincing as to why we've seen this enormous culture change within academia and particularly, and, and it's a theory that also explains why we would see it more in feminist philosophy than elsewhere, is it's to do with the feminization of public life. It's the rush of women into positions of professional roles um, and bringing with them the kind of average differences in female temperament in the for instance, women are, for instance, more agreeable. We've talked already about different modes of aggression between men and women. Uh, women are slightly more neurotic than men. You know, all the you know all these differences, which on an individual level do not necessarily tell you anything. You know, the fact if you know someone's sex, you don't know their personality. But if you have hundreds or thousands or more people within an institution, you are going to expect differences on average between men and women. And if you have, an, I mean, philosophy, I presume 100 years ago was basically 100% male. The episode is not over. There is another maybe 30 minutes of content, but it is behind a paywall. If you would like access to that content, if you would like to show support for the show, pay subscriptions are what keep it on the road. Allow me to pay my producers, put food on the table, all that important stuff. The extended version of the podcast is available at my substack, louiseperry.substack.com. That's where you can also find, as I say every week, bonus episodes, extended episodes, uh, the MMM chat community, all of this. Um, please sign up for a pay subscription. It makes such an enormous difference to my ability to keep producing the podcast and grow it even bigger, produce more episodes, all that good stuff. There are other ways that you can show your support for the show as well. You can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. You can like us on YouTube. You can tell your friends and family uh, how much you like the show. If you find it valuable, all of these things make an enormous difference to our ability to keep making it. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs>